Hello and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking with H. Roger Grant. This will be his second time on our podcast this year. The first time we talked to H. Roger Grant, it was about his new book about the role of the station agent in railroading history. In this week's episode, we're going to be diving back into his collection. H. Roger Grant is a professor and a prolific railroad author, so he's had many, many books over his career, diving into different railroads and different positions on the railroad. Um, And for this one, we jumped into a discussion about what the role of the railroad was in Dreams of Utopia, specifically the ideas of utopia made by farmers during the late 1800s. And they saw the railroad as specifically a farmer's railroad owned and operated by farmers in their community as a form of self-help and community building. In this podcast, we'll explore the challenges faced by the farmers, their grievances against the shipping rates and discriminatory practices of the uh, major railroad companies, and their determination to create a fair and efficient transportation system that would benefit their communities. So thank you so much for listening this week. I think this interview went really well. Um, So without further ado, we'll go ahead and get into the show. Well, welcome everybody to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. I'm sitting here today with H. Roger Grant, who's back on the podcast. Um, You were here a couple of weeks ago to talk about your new book, which is about railroad stations, uh, station agents rather, um, and their role in the railroad and their legacy. Um, today we're going back from, uh, for in your catalog to a book that you wrote in the, uh, in the eighties. So, so well into your catalog here today, um, which centers around a farmer's vision of the railroads as a sort of utopian, um, vision. So, so thank you for coming back on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Awesome. Um, well, your book focused on a bunch of different self-help, um, strategies during the 1890s and these uh, former railroads were were one of these um, such self-help movements. Um, so what was going on during the 1890s that made that decade particularly interesting time to look at this type of thing? Well that's an easy uh, question to answer in the sense that in May of 1893 the nation experienced uh, a panic on Wall Street which triggered uh, five troubled years. And I would argue that between uh, 1893 and 1897, the nation had its worst depression. If you look at unemployment rates in various cities from coast to coast, uh, they're astronomical. In Chicago, during uh, the workless winter of 1893-1894, it was estimated that maybe 60 to 70 percent of workers were unemployed. And then there were others who were uh, not only unemployed, but they were occasionally underemployed. And uh, also there would be uh, cuts in salaries. But like the Great Depression of the 1930s, that there is a period of deflation. So if you had a 10% cut, it's uh, actually not bad at all. In fact, uh, your buying power might be uh, significantly increased. But it is an exciting time. And I got interested in this because my uh, doctoral dissertation was on life and fire insurance reform during the populist progressive era. And it it struck me that uh, an important part of the emerging progressive movement, it didn't appear 
its origins in the early 20th century, but it grew out of the uh, depressed condition of the 1890s. And uh, I was uh, interested in um, how people responded. And uh, even before uh, I uh, did that uh, dissertation, I'd had uh, coursework with David Thielen, who uh, at the University of Missouri, who came up uh, with an imaginative way to explain the origins, seeing it as largely a consumer response uh, rather than individuals who were suffering from status anxieties or whatever. So it is one of those watershed shed decades in uh, the nation's past. You know, we've had a number, you know, the 1930s, we could argue the 1960s, and who knows about today. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like at this point, there's just so much sort of um, economic turmoil. People aren't um, necessarily able to find employment um, within corporations. So um, they decide to start figuring out ways, especially with these farming railroads, to um, so there'd been an agricultural depression in much of the country since the late 1880s. If you look at wheat prices on the Great Plains in 1880, they were roughly a dollar 25 cents a bushel. Uh, by 1889, they had plummeted to 15 cents a bushel. And uh, these farmers who are raising wheat, uh, this is their sole income. And uh, from the very beginning of uh, commercial agriculture in the United States, farmers wanted dependable transportation. They wanted to sell their crops outside the community. Otherwise, they'd be stuck with really low prices or a bartering uh, situation. And so, you know, they use flatboats and steamboats and canals, but railroads were the magic carpets. They really shattered uh, isolation. And uh, when you think about it, uh, the roads in the 19th century were just abysmal. And this is also true in the early part of the 20th century. And maybe even today, they're abysmal in places. Uh, we have plenty of uh, potholes in upstate South Carolina. But uh, the point is that uh, in terms of land transportation, railroads were the option. And that's why we have uh, almost from the beginning of the railway age, these impossible dreams, which are sort of utopian-like. Uh, when you think about uh, uh, William Redfield as early as 1830, and remember the B&O didn't uh, turn a wheel until the very late 1890s and the South Carolina Canal and Railroad Company uh, dates from uh, 1830 in terms of operations. Uh, but uh, Redfield uh, was uh, thinking about an ironway, as he called it, to the Pacific, perhaps from the American Great Lakes uh, after it had been constructed uh, from the East Coast, New York State, and then out to the Oregon country, uh, not to uh, California yet, because it's still uh, controlled by uh, uh, the Mexican Republic. But uh, so so here, you know, this is incredible. You know, here's a guy that uh, was um, actually a, a reputable uh, scientist and civil engineer, and uh, he comes up with this idea. But I assume that most people uh, in California are somewhat uh, familiar with Asa Whitney, uh, who in the 1840s was talking about uh, a true uh, transcontinental railroad. This would go from the Great Lakes uh, uh, to uh, Oregon. And uh, later, uh, 
there were the advocates in the 1850s of uh, building it uh, to uh, California, to uh, San Francisco, or perhaps as it turned out, uh, milepost zero on the uh, uh, Central Pacific was uh, there in um, Sacramento, uh, California on the river. Uh, so you know, we have these, I think they're just fascinating, these individuals who really think big, and when I think big, uh, one one idea just really uh, comes to mind. And and this is on the eve of the 1890s depression. It's William Gilpin. Uh, Gilpin uh, was uh, educated at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. He was involved with Fremont uh, in the West, including California in the 1850s. He was the first territorial governor of Colorado. And in 1890, his book, Cosmopolitan Railway, was published. And uh, this was a railroad that would go from Denver uh, to what would be called uh, the uh, District of Alaska. Alaska doesn't become a territory until 1912. And then, okay, we have a railroad, Denver to Alaska, and then we're going to cross the Bering Sea maybe originally just when it freezes over or partially freezes over and it's possible to use ice plus a bridge. It was not clear in the book. And then we're going to go through Siberia all the way to Moscow. So, and then connect with other railroads in Europe. So just think about it, a railroad from Denver to Moscow. But look, there was another scheme, which wasn't American. It was the Great uh, Central uh, Railway of England, uh, which was uh, built uh, in the late 19th century by Sir uh, William uh, Watkins. And Watkins' idea was to have this railroad from the Midlands to London, then to the uh, Channel, a tunnel under the Channel, and then use existing railroads to Spain, have a car float to from Gibraltar to the African mainland, follow the south coast of the Mediterranean to the Middle East, and somehow get through the mountains in Afghanistan, and then uh, to Bombay uh, and other points uh, in India. And, you know, part of it uh, was quite possible. But, uh, you know, when you have railroads as the only real option, you know, this is before automobiles and motor trucks, uh, you know, and then when we got them, at least the cars were sort of the playthings of the idle rich, or at least that's the public uh, vision of them. So, yeah, I, I guess uh, we would say that Gilpin's uh, Cosmopolitan Railway is certainly utopian, but it wasn't a farmer's railroad. Uh, stock would be issued, bonds would be sold uh, as well. But I couldn't imagine um, any uh, reasonable investor. Although, you know, we've had some bubbles uh, on Wall Street, uh, you know, in the 1990s uh, uh, and even later than that. So, goodness. Um, so farmers, the point is, needed a way of getting their uh, goods, their products, whether livestock and most likely crops uh, to uh, market. And this is really the only alternative. So we do have these impossible dreams uh, that occurred uh, at uh, the very dawn of uh, railroads in the United States.
So I think that's always fascinating. I think we like utopian schemes, whether they're religious related or non-religious, I think are always to me fascinated. And uh, there was a period in my career where I uh, was really intrigued with utopian communities, having uh, written a number of articles on a variety of them and uh, doing a, a book uh, on the French Icarians and also on a small religious group that rolled into California in 1915 from Illinois, the Spirit Fruit Society. So, yes, um, I think maybe you would disagree, but utopian schemes, I think, are fascinating, but I don't think I would ever want to participate in one, you know, like the hippie communes of the 1960s and the 1970s. And we still have some uh, that uh, can be found uh, throughout uh, the United States. Um, I think that like, that's the thing, right, is like, like, even within those um, impossible dreams of these different railroads, um, you see a little bit about what they value and what they they are looking towards. Um, and while we don't have a railroad that's going to stretch all the way around the world and will go from Denver to, to Moscow to all these other places, we don't have that. But we do have a very globalized world, which they were starting to see, it sounds like. like the, That's a good point. Uh, I agree. And for them, like like obviously shipping's big during this time period for for international travel, but like the railroads are the new thing. The railroads are the thing that is connecting. Yeah, they're they're in some ways like the telegraph. You know, they're the internet of the time period. Well, maybe a better analogy would be they're the the interstate highways. They are the airlines. Uh, they are the uh, uh, ships that uh, carry those uh, magical steel boxes uh, from. Um, Asia to America and around the world and vice versa. But what I was focusing on, though, in terms of Farmers Railroad, are uh, several schemes that came out of the Depression era of the 1890s. And when you think about it, uh, first of all, Farmers wanted the railroads built. Uh, and certainly by the 1890s, there developed a love-hate relationship with railroads. There were complaints. You know, we had to have them, but there were complaints about rates. There were complaints about service, uh, just like we have in the airline industry today. I mean, airline tickets are expensive right now. Uh, service can be iffy, and we'll see what happens uh, uh, during uh, the summer of, of 2023. So the farmers on the Great Plains became involved, and this was really the epicenter of the Farmers Railroad movement, uh, and, and they looked at their alternatives. And one alternative uh, was certainly expressed in the People's Party platform, the Omaha platform of 1892, where the Populist Party, the People's Party, wanted national ownership of railroads and the means of communication, which would include telegraph companies and also express companies. And, and they believe that the model should be the United States postal system. And I think today we make so many jokes about the post office, you know, snail mail. But the idea was there was a real esprit de corps in the uh, railway uh, operations, the railway post office. You know, you could in the 1890s, even, you could uh, uh, mail a postcard uh, on uh, Thursday and get a response by uh, uh, Saturday uh, 
the writer suggesting that maybe on Sunday, uh, 50 miles away, uh, we'll have uh, dinner uh, after church. So, uh, yeah, that was one alternative. And the other alternative was to have meaningful regulatory communication or uh, uh, commissions. But there was a lot of uh, unhappiness uh, with the uh, Interstate Commerce Act of 1887 that created the uh, ICC. There was a feeling that uh, it just was not dealing with uh, the problems that so many uh, shippers and uh, overall patrons of railroads uh, uh, encountered. In fact, there's this wonderful letter, one of my favorite letters. It was written to Charles Perkins, Charlie Perkins, who was the head of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy. And it came from Richard Olney, who was uh, for uh, one year or so, uh, the Attorney General of the United States in the Grover Cleveland administration. This is in the, uh, the 1890s. Uh, and he, he had received a letter from Perkins uh, lamenting the ICC. Perkins uh, believed in uh, free trade. He did not want any government intervention. Well, he wasn't opposed to land grants. But the point was that only said, look, Charlie, calm down, because in time, the commission will take the railroad's point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that happened because the railroads had the financial data and the ICC uh, did not have uh, an army of experts. Uh, they did not have access uh, to uh, computer generated uh, data, whatever. And uh, back in the 1950s, there was a Princeton uh, University professor uh, that uh, had a very, some people would say boring book, but uh, this uh, scholar pointed out that, yes, in time, the parties to be regulated often capture the machinery. And I certainly saw that uh, in terms of uh, insurance uh, commissions in the late 19th and early 20th century. There were some obvious exceptions. There were uh, sort of a new breed of commercial of uh, uh, insurance commissioners who were concerned about the public interest. Uh, Kansas was certainly a, a good example of that. So the point is that, you know, what are the alternatives? Uh, you can have the government take over the railroads, or you can have meaningful regulatory controls. But there is another option. Maybe we could go out and build our own railroads. Great idea. So you might think, how in the world would some dirt farmers know how to build a railroad? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and so we do see some examples of this. Uh, the, the, the two that I like to talk about are the Duluth and North Dakota Railroad, uh, which is incorporated in North Dakota in 1894, and the somewhat uh, later, this is 1912, the Fairmont and Veblen Railway that ran between Fairmont, North Dakota, and Veblen, South Dakota, and it was extended uh, further south, and in time, it was an 87-mile short line. Okay, so here's how we do it. One, the farmer's Along the projected line, you would have a survey. Maybe you'd get the county engineer to do this at a reasonable cost. Maybe it contribute his uh, services. The property owners would then give 
the right-of-way strip. And in the United States, it was a standard 100-foot width. And the reason why it was so wide, even though the gauge is four feet, eight and a half inches, is that you're going to need a telegraph line, probably. Or if it's a big railroad, you're going to need signaling and whatever, sightings and so on. So the point of the matter is that uh, the land isn't going to cost anything. And so we will start to do the grading and the farmers will do this. They will have their teams of horses. They will have scrapers. Uh, they will make this. Uh, they will build their own bridges. And where's the wood coming from? Well, ideally, there's going to be stands of uh, hardwoods, <laughs> not cottonwoods, but hardwoods uh, that could be used uh, for ties and bridge timbers and so on. All right. So now we have the right-of-way and it is there graded. We have the ties, we have the bridges and maybe wooden culverts or maybe a stone culvert, but all of this is donated labor. And what the people get ultimately would be their own railroad, but in the interim, they're going to get stock in the company. And in one uh, rather uh, bizarre scheme, it was called the uh, Gulf and Interstate Railway, which also dates from 1894, that uh, people who contributed land, materials, and labor would get transportation certificates. And transportation certificates would allow them to have reduced rates on this new railroad. Or maybe they would get uh, a certain amount of free transportation. So these schemes are, are changing. Um, so what we find with the Duluth and North Dakota Railroad is that um, uh, the reason for its inception was that there were parts of uh, northern and northeastern North Dakota that uh, uh, lacked adequate rail service. And there was a real hatred of uh, James J. Hill, the empire builder, with his uh, Great Northern Railway. They believed that he was not sympathetic to farmers, uh, that uh, rates were intolerable, service was not the best. They just did not like the Great Northern. They thought that Hill was committing acts of what they said were corporate uh, arrogance. So <laughs> they originally were wanting to build their railroad uh, uh, from uh, Duluth uh, to uh, Drayton, North Dakota. And the ringleader or the uh, instigator, the leader is a farmer by the name of David Hines, H-I-N-E-S. And uh, this guy's really imaginative. He wasn't rich, but he was creative. And he created a newspaper, copies of which uh, are available, uh, I don't think online, but on microfilm from the North Dakota Historic Society in Bismarck called the Farmer's Railroad. And that's how I was attracted to it. A friend of mine was the archivist of uh, the state of North Dakota, and he knew that I was working on self-help movements in the 1890s. Uh, for this book that was published in the early 1980s. And so, you know, I would have never probably found uh, Mr. Hines and the Farmer's Railroad without that help. In other words, before I could Google anything, not in 1983. But anyway, um, they decided that uh, this is going to be just too long. It's going to be a 500-mile railroad from Drayton uh, to Duluth. And so they cut it back uh, uh, to... Uh, 
a place called Deer River, Minnesota. And uh, it would only be about 160 miles in length. But they did do some grading uh, in the Drayton area. And they also harvested uh, a significant amount of timber in uh, northern uh, Minnesota. Uh, but uh, the whole thing fell apart uh, uh, within a few years, largely because Hill is no idiot and Hill reduced significantly grain rates. And so the farmers railroad movement here, the uh, Duluth in uh, North Dakota, uh, just really was a paper railroad, or it was just partially built. Obviously, it never turned a wheel. Uh, and then there is this Farmers Grain and Shipping Company uh, in North Dakota, but it's really a misnomer. Uh, Hill was behind it. Uh, the local uh, uh, person, um, in Devil's Lake, uh, who was uh, the leader, the president, if you will, was a man named Joseph Kelly. He was a well-to-do farmer. Uh, he uh, saw some um, great business prospects here, uh, making his land increase in value with access directly to a railroad. And also he was involved in uh, some grain elevator operations, and he saw that this new railroad would be uh, making it possible for uh, additional uh, grain uh, uh, elevators to be built. Now, we're not talking big ones. We're just talking 10,000 to 15,000 bushel elevators. So anyway, Hill was behind this. Uh, it did uh, build uh, its own railroad uh, from uh, Devil's Lake to Starkweather, North Dakota, which is about 25 miles in, in length. It was later extended uh, to Hansboro, which made it uh, uh, a much longer railroad, uh, 50 some mile branch. Uh, but it wasn't really a farmer's railroad. Uh, uh, it was really made possible by the Great Northern. Uh, they took the bonds of the railroad and uh, of the paper company and uh, then uh, rapidly built it after the first part was uh, opened in 1902. And uh, Hill was very clever here. Uh, he did not want this uh, organized as a railroad, but as a general business concern, because that way the State Railroad Commission of North Dakota could not force it to operate year round. And it would operate only during the grain rush of, uh, of the late summer, uh, early fall, whenever the grain rush uh, occurred in uh, the beautiful state of North Dakota. So that's not really a farmer's railroad, although the papers of the Farmer's Grain and Shipping Company are available at the Minnesota Historic Society. And uh, it's quite evident that uh, uh, this was just a sort of a stocking horse uh, for Hale. In fact, he thought this might be a model for how he could uh, have uh, uh, locals build other uh, uh, branches. And the North Dakota map of the Great Northern, say by World War I, had this picket fence on the top where you had all these uh, branches, and some of them still are in operation by BNSF. And uh, yeah, uh, it was thought, though, that if this had been a true uh, farmer's railroad, it might have been built into Canada, were connected uh, with the Canadian uh, uh, Pacific or what would become later the Canadian National. Uh, 
and the Sioux line, which was friendly to farmers, much more so in the Great Northern, uh, uh, would build um, a parallel branch to the Farmers Grain and Shipping Company, at least for about uh, uh, 20 or 30 miles uh, early in the 20th century. So, yeah, Hill didn't do that well uh, because he was going to have to compete uh, uh, with the uh, despised uh, Sioux line. But there is another example, which was really a true uh, farmer's uh, railroad. And this is the uh, Fairmont and Veblen Railroad uh, from uh, Fairmont, uh, North Dakota, down to Veblen and eventually to Granville, uh, North Dakota. But uh, I uh, am a collector of railroad paper. And uh, once upon a time, I got a small broadside. It's called the Farmers Railroads Meetings. And let me just read this. This is from 1912. Meetings will be held at the places designated below at 2 p.m. on the dates given. At these meetings, the Farmers Railroad Project will be fully explained. It is in your interest at stake. Be there and take part in the meetings. Okay. Yes. And they did. And, uh, so uh, in uh, 1912, uh, we find uh, this being organized. 1913, we have just what I said. There would be the uh, farmers harvesting timber for the ties. And before that, of course, uh, shaping uh, the grade on this uh, free right-of-way right land. And uh, the Sioux line bought the bonds, and uh, that really helped. Uh, it was often thought that maybe local banks would buy the bonds, but this was a relatively uh, large endeavor. And uh, they picked Fairmont, which was really bright in the sense that there were four railroads that served uh, uh, this community. And, uh, well, they were the four. Um, there were three others, the uh, Northern Pacific, uh, the Milwaukee, and the Sioux. And as you know today, with short-line railroads, if you have just one outlet, let's say it's with UP or BNSF, you know, you're sort of at the mercy of uh, the uh, dominant uh, Class One uh, carrier. But anyway, uh, this was successful. However, uh, in... Uh, 1914, after the line uh, went uh, 87 miles uh, to Granville, uh, South Dakota, and this was an area that was underserved by uh, railroads, uh, the Sioux line uh, took it over. But it, it's different from what the Great Northern did. The Great Northern, this was plotting, you know, from day one uh, to have this farmer's grain and shipping company. And uh, no, the Fairmont and Veblen um, was a Sioux line branch. And it was in service uh, well into the uh, end of the 20th century. So farmers were just desperate for railroad connections, and you can understand why. You know, you got to get your grain to the market and your livestock. And you don't have to have a farmer's railroad movement to have active uh, uh, agricultural support. I have a book coming out uh, in uh, July from uh, Indiana University Press. Authors are shameless in promoting uh, their work. Uh, that uh, is called Sunset Cluster. And it's a saga of uh, some short lines uh, that were built between 1907 and 1913 in Western Iowa. And one was Atlantic Northern and Southern. And I just was so impressed 
uh, with how a large number of Danish American farmers north of Atlantic, Iowa, in Elkhorn and Kimbleton, Iowa, uh, just did everything to make uh, this a reality. Uh, the railroad had some problems when it eventually uh, built down to Villisca, Iowa from uh, Atlantic, but the northern line uh, was more stable and it lasted until the 1930s. It had to be reorganized and became the Atlantic Northern Railroad. But what I'm trying to spit out is that these farmers uh, were uh, willing uh, to come to the aid of the railroad, both during its building, its inception, and then later, um, although uh, by uh, 1930, they were gravitating away from it because by that time, the Good Roads Movement was lifting Iowa out of the mud and also trucks were reliable, at least for maybe 50 miles or so. And for, but for farmers, they wouldn't have to take their livestock uh, to a railroad siding or to Elkhorn or Kimberleton. Uh, the truck come right to the farmstead, pick up the cattle, and uh, you know it's a more or less seamless trip, uh, either to another railroad or to uh, a packing uh, house, an auction house, or whatever it might be. Um, and, and this idea that farmers wanted railroads, you know, goes back really to the beginning of railroads. Uh, I was intrigued uh, recently. Uh, uh, about uh, what some farmers in uh, Wisconsin did uh, in the 1840s. They were trying to get a railroad to Milwaukee from Waukesha, and uh, um, they were having a hard time raising capital. And so what the farmers did, and there were a large number of them, German-American farmers, Norwegian, well, not so many Norwegians, but Germans, that they mortgaged their farm and with that money, the city of Milwaukee bought their bonds, and then they were sold uh, in Eastern markets, and actually a few in uh, London uh, and uh, Frankfurt, uh, Germany. Uh, and this seemed like good. They, they got stock in the company. But then the Panic of 1857 set in, which was quite severe in the Midwest, and the stock became worthless because uh, the Milwaukee and Waukesha Railroad went bankrupt. Uh, you know, they got the railroad, but some of them lost their farms. But that just shows you that kind of enthusiasm that farmers had. And I might just say, uh, going back to the Danish uh, farmers, uh, I'm not Danish at all. But the point is that they really had a sense of community and uh, uh, were quite generous in their support of, of all sorts of community institutions. So it's a it's an interesting tale. And and, you know, it's happening even today, you know, as a result of all the mega mergers and the collapse of Penn Central, et cetera, et cetera. Some of these short lines were going to be abandoned. And you do see farmers organizations taking them over. Uh, some of them are successful and some of them uh, have histories that are not really in years. There's one in Iowa that lasted about six months, mainly because the railroad they got was in such poor condition. It was a beat up branch line that uh, just was not uh, feasible really to restore without a lot of uh, capital input. So, you know, agricultural people today want railroads. Now, 
obviously we don't seem to have that many line elevators. We now have central terminals. We truck it in uh, so we can get uh, special uh, uh, unit grain rates um, on these covered hoppers that weigh, uh, what, 265,000 pounds, uh, whatever. And that was one of the problems, too, in the recent past in the 1970s and 1980s was that the, the physical structure could not support modern uh, heavy uh, rolling stock like those uh, large uh, covered hoppers. So, you know, it just makes sense. Uh, you know, you got to get your goods to market and how do you do it? Now, you know, we have the option at places of barge lines and, uh, uh, you know, trucks, obviously. So, it's just fun to see how people were dedicated and were willing to risk a great deal to get what they needed. One of the things that interests me, so we've talked specifically, uh, you started with talking about three different companies or three different attempts that uh, sort of are involved in this movement. And the first one um, is a paper railroad that never actually uh, has locomotives run on it, but but it is effective in convincing the Great Northern to... Um, to start fixing some of the problems that the farmers found with that railroad. So it uh, isn't successful as a railroad, but is somewhat successful, it sounds like, in improving conditions for these farmers. And then we have that second um, one where, okay, well, now the Great Northern is just kind of using that populist momentum to, to build their own railroad and, and kind of keep control um, over that. Um, and it's really only one example in which, like, you have direct control um, to some degree um, with these farmers in this railroad. So we only really have, it sounds like, like a sample size of one here. One of the things I'm interested in is, um, are the goals of these farmers' railroads, how do they deviate from that of, say, a, a big railroad that's like a corporate structure, like the UP or the, the Great Northern, like these kind of things? Like, like, do these farmers in these instances want to make a railroad that is like fairly cheap and doesn't really make money, but then it just facilitates the, the trade of the agriculture? Um, or are they trying to fully replicate um, these, these larger railroads where they make money off their agriculture, but then they're also making money off of the fares? Um, do we have any idea of how they may be similar, how they may be different in their, their goals and aspects? Well, I, I think their goal was to uh, certainly break even, uh, to pay off their debts. Um, they perhaps would... Uh, think about selling their railroad, which is essentially what happened with the Fairmont and Veblen Railway, if they could work out some arrangement with a trunk line or a major railroad uh, to get uh, sort of guaranteed service and uh, rates that were acceptable. But they didn't have to worry about rates so much in time because during the Progressive Era with the Hepburn Act of 1906 and the Mann-Elkins Act four years later, we see that the ICC is really becoming muscular. So that rate issue, but the service issue does remain. And, and I think their attitude was not unlike uh, small uh, short lines today is that they sell service, you know, and hopefully they can, you know, pay their employees uh, but they have flexible uh, work rules. Uh, you know, somebody might be running a locomotive one day and next day is out uh, fixing uh, a switch or uh, doing something else. Um, you know, painting a, 
a, a station or doing some office work. Who knows? But but that's the idea. It's going to be service oriented, and if it remains independent, uh, yes, we want to make some money. We want to pay our debts, uh, and uh, we want to uh, have. Um, reasonably good equipment uh, that is dependable, but we also might want to sell out at some point. And hopefully we can get a sweetheart deal with, uh, you know, a Union Pacific or a Southern Pacific or uh, uh, Rock Island or whatever. And the point is that major railroads, both past and present, do have different corporate cultures and have different relationships with the public. Uh, but these farmers are not, uh, you know, hayseeds. I think we have some very bright people. And uh, I would say, too, that uh, you do have these live wires in these small farming communities. You know, today, you know, we talk about these dying communities uh, that are just scattered over various parts of the country. Uh, you know, people want to go to the cities or the suburbs. You know, they don't want to stay in... Uh, you know, the cement South Dakota, for example. Uh, you know, I, I just know that in my high school that uh, in Southern Iowa, that one of the big deals was let's go to the Quad Cities and get a job with John Deere, or maybe we'd go to a community college or, uh, but we're going to get out of my hometown. And uh, <laughs> there was one year where there was a race. Uh, one kid uh, walked across the stage, got his diploma, walked out, the car was packed, and he went to Des Moines. So, you know, you know, I win. You know, I'm in Des Moines. I'm going to have a good life, and I'm not going to be in Monroe County, Iowa, in a dying uh, coal mining area and uh, marginal farming area. So there. Do you think the legacy of um, not just the Farmers Railroad, but a little bit to that, um, but then also these other co-op um, and uh, self-help uh, programs? Well, I think uh, you do see... Uh, um, and they began uh, in the late 19th century, cooperative elevators. And uh, you find organizations like the Farmers Union uh, that uh, has uh, a series of, uh, of farmer-owned elevators throughout the Great Plains and in the uh, uh, Rocky Mountain West. Uh, I think people realize that uh, cooperative efforts uh, do tend to work. Uh, and uh, when farmers were wanting uh, better uh, communications, they formed cooperative telephone companies uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, so, yes, uh, there are ways of uh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, by uh, working with your neighbors, etc. Um, you know, it's not all dependent upon uh, the federal government, but there are certain things the federal government needs to do uh, and uh, can do. And certainly that whole story about rate uh, control or improved uh, rates for shippers or for patrons is that we did need to have uh, the interstate uh, uh, commerce um, controls. Although uh, we did see during the Granger movement of the 1870s in those four upper Mississippi Valley states of Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, that there were uh, some uh, really stringent uh, uh, state regulatory laws with newly organized or created uh, 
railroad commissions. The trouble there was that people didn't understand the complexities of rate making. Uh, you know, it was the long haul, long haul, short haul uh, debate. Uh, when in reality, uh, it's more complicated. You know, there was this classic example about Galva, Illinois. Well, it costs more to ship a, a carload of corn 100 miles into Chicago than it did 750 miles from Chicago to uh, an eastern uh, seaport. Uh, but, you know, there are certain switching costs and, you know, there are other factors that play into it. And I, even though the Supreme Court upheld the Granger laws uh, in Munn versus uh, Illinois in 1877, they did reverse themselves with the Wabash case in 1886. Uh, but, you know, regulating rates is complex. I mean, uh, gosh. Um, my math skills are terrible, and I have real uh, pride in those, or I like those people that uh, are able to figure this out. Um, yes. So the cooperative uh, movement and also uh, community boosterism is a part of the legacy. I think we certainly see that here, uh, trying to uh, make uh, the community uh, uh, in this case, in agricultural communities, uh, you know, doing much better. But of course, you know, there, there are people that are going to benefit if these communities prosper. In fact, uh, in this uh, uh, timetable that I have from 1914 for the Fairmont and Veblen, there, there are a lot of, you know, real estate opportunities, you know, uh, this new town is going to need a hardware store, we're going to need a doctor, uh, whatever. They're not worried necessarily about getting a, a Lutheran minister or a Methodist one or a Christian science church. Uh, they're, they're, they're interested in making sure that we've got those uh, prosperous uh, stores on Main Street, uh, which probably is going to be uh, uh, running uh, perpendicular uh, to the depot. Uh, if you ever look at Great Plains towns or you look at capital cities uh, uh, like um, Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, they're they're laid out to, to deal with the railroad, uh, you know, the so-called T-towns uh, that you see that are ubiquitous in the Great Plains and also elsewhere in the country as well. You know, because the railroad, the dominant uh, business, uh, so to speak. Yeah, that's something we always focus on here at the museum. It's, um, let's see if I, because I always get this inverted, but let's see if I get this right. Um, the railroad wasn't built around our towns. Our towns were built around the railroad. So that's that's true in the Midwest. And then one of my favorite things when I go somewhere, um, even like a little, actually, it's especially true when you go to um, smaller cities, like I'm thinking um, of Salinas, California, which is about three hours from us. Uh, population is, well, it's California, so it's still decently big, but I think it's like 80,000 to 100,000. That's huge. <laughs> it's, it's one of those like California moments for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a small town. But um, but yeah, so I go to the Railroad Museum there um, and, and at all these small towns, you see the phrase, um, this city has a unique history with the railroad. And then they describe that process of, well, this city was built around the railroad. And it's my favorite thing to go and find because, you know, it's not unique. It is it is the thing that so many of these towns are built around the railroad. And, so and, and they're also named for railroad officials uh, for, uh, uh, <laughs> in one case, uh, I always like this. There's a town in Iowa that was uh, on the Chicago Northwestern. 
that was it's named Colo, C-O-L-O. Well, that was a surveyor's dog's name. Uh, and then you have uh, in uh, Idaho along uh, an NP uh, line, uh, Vassar, uh, Wellesley, et cetera, named for the uh, uh, schools, the colleges of uh, the uh, surveyors or the uh, people staking it out or the contractors, uh, wives or sweethearts, uh, alma maters. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. If you'd like to learn more about H. Roger Grant's extensive collection of railroad-related books, please check out the description of this podcast. Join us again next time, and if you liked this week's episode, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe.